welcome to another Round the Rotary podcast. I'm your host, J.P. Warren. And uh, before we begin, i got to say that Round the Rotary podcast is brought to you by Capital Petroleum Consultants. CPC specialize in project engineering and well site supervision in all disciplines of the oil and gas industry. Contact us through www.capitalpetroleumconsultants.com to see what CPC can do for you today. Whether I said three W's or four, doesn't matter. I think everyone should know how to work the internet by now. So anyway, thanks for everyone for tuning in for, uh, to Round the Rotary. We know you have your choice of podcasts out there, and we appreciate you tuning into this one. You can find uh, Round the Rotary on whatever you're listening to right now. Uh, if, if, if you'd like, go leave a, a review and, uh, and comments and let us know what you think. You can find us on uh, Instagram at uh, round underscore the underscore rotary underscore JP Warren and kind of uh, just find out, kind of um, get some more additional content. And uh, and I guess uh, before we get uh, kicked off, we have uh, – no, we just got kicked off right now i know it's kind of uh come back from tuesday uh post easter you know post uh post uh, did you have any cadbury eggs or anything like that did not we didn't we don't do the the chocolate you don't do the chocolate yeah i don't think evelyn does either she just goes straight to the sour stuff but i try to take all the the reese's pieces peanut butter cups i don't know if i know i need it we did a lot of eggs though you did egg dying yeah oh egg dying is pretty fun i haven't done that in a while well, when I say a while, I'm 40 years old right now. I probably haven't done that since I was a kid, but still, I remember that being a good time. It just seems like a lot of mess uh, to me right now as a dad. But anyway, everyone, this is a, this is a, I'm glad you're joining us today. This is a Will Colley, the a Regional Service Delivery Technical Manager at Baker Hughes. And we were discussing that title before we did the podcast. And you said, yeah, it's kind of long. I'm uh, you just say operations engineer manager for North American land completions. And well intervention, and we shortened it to operations engineer manager NAL CWI. Is that right? You got it all. Which one are we going with today? Which one are we going with? The last one, the, the second one, what? Well, so the story behind these is our organization um, recently went through a transformation where they changed the word operations. Well, time out, time out. I never said what company, Baker Hughes. Okay, go on. <laughs> yes, sorry, Baker Hughes. We changed the title of operations to service delivery. So ultimately, it was trying to fit uh, both standardized across the globe, okay. uh, but fit really what, what does operations mean? And it's really the, um, the teams that, that deliver the service. Okay. And so they changed the word operations to service, so, service so delivery. So service delivery technical manager is essentially a engineering manager um, for the operations team. It's a little rebranding. I like that though. Yeah. I like that. I dig that. You, you gotta, you gotta evolve and gotta adapt. So, so before we came on, your your wife Kate Hyken came on, and she uh, she was she's number two most downloaded around the Rotary po- uh, podcast yet. Got Mike a lot, Tis- lot to live up to. Lot to live up to. Mike Tessieri is before her, but mind you, he uh, he came. He was one of the. He's the first one I ever did. So Kate came in and overpassed a lot of people. Came up. She's flying there. So what prep work did you do? Is this your first podcast? This is my first. This part. is yes. Are you a podcast guy? Um, you know, I listen to some. Okay, very selective. But um, which ones do you do? You do obviously stuff? around the rotary. Obviously around the rotary. <laughs> Brought to you by CPC. Um, motivational intelligence is one that I've also listened to, um, and then there's just a couple other random ones. Do you so. do any? Is is it more professional or personal enjoyment? Um, it's more professional. Okay, I I, I find online. I listen to music. During my downtime, usually for personal. I kind of like that. I feel like that's kind of old school. I feel like right now, a lot of people like are in like this, like, I'm not even a podcast guy. You know what I mean? Like, of course, I'll listen to the, the, the several to support, you know, my friends and fellow podcast people out there. But like a lot of people right now, I guess they feel like they have to come back. They're like fill their time, their void time with all this productive stuff and productive podcasts, books on tape, professional this, but I'm the same way, man. I, I dig it. I listen to music too. Long road trips, music, or a true crime podcast. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's it, man. So what prep work did uh, did you get? Were you nervous? Are you nervous? Uh, not too bad. I mean, I get in front of a lot of people, presentations and that sort of thing, so I kind of liken this to, to that, right? Okay. Uh, preparation for presentation or anything, so... But um, as far as at home, you know, Kate uh, gave me a few uh, pieces of advice. She says that I tend to, uh, as an engineer, she says I tend to um, provide a little too many details in okay. my stories. So she said, "Hey, you might want to, you know, tone it down a little bit." Do we need? Do, do we need a? Do we need a? Uh, do we need a sign like a like a a sign or a? Yeah, just give me a, a signal whenever. Uh, yeah, I just downloaded uh, this. this. Is
anyway, sorry, I was trying to bring in a little sound effects here, but it's not working. But anyway, so so cut cut not too much detail. Shorten it up. Yeah, elevator yeah. elevator talk. Yeah. No, but but honestly, uh, she uh, we actually have a really uh, neat scenario where she works for an operator. I work for a service company, and um, we're both in leadership roles in our organizations, and so we're able to go back and forth between hey, I've tried this technique for motivation, or I've um, I've done this with my team. Um, you know, and various tidbits. Hey, here's a you know a, a short video on uh, leadership, right? That you can either look at for yourself or you can send to your team. You so know, can, so, kind, of, kind of help each other out with that. Yeah. So that wasn't necessarily just for the podcast, but just in general for our careers. It's it's cool to be able to bounce off some high level things within our organizations to say, hey, this has worked for me. Uh, maybe you can try it or. If we have some some challenges, that we can bring those up and and discuss them. Is that challenging? Because I mean, obviously, my wife doesn't work for an opera or anything like that. Is that tough to kind of, I guess, uh, separate, like, shut down the whole uh, conversations when it comes to the professional side versus the personal side? Like, hey, we're talking a little bit too much about uh, work right now. Let's let's switch it up yeah. a little bit. Is that is that is that a challenge? It is, and 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 we do, and we. That's why I said high level, right? So that, that there's just some overarching themes that we're able to talk to. But it, as far as getting into the details in the weeds, you know, we kind of. Leave, leave that at the office. You've uh, you lo- you've learned how to separate that exactly, which is great. So and uh, so you could just so it's uh, again we're recording this on uh, April sixth, uh, twenty twenty one, and so the only advice was just do the elevator pitch and let's just it's a conversation, right? Yeah. No warnings or anything. Then more excitement, more motivation. Yeah. No. There. I mean, she said that um, you know you you really do want to get your point across. Of you know, is there anything that you you want people to know about you and. Um, and, and how you are both professionally and, and as a person. And I think that really, you know, through the things that we've, we've talked about, the conversation, that that'll, that'll come across. Well, let's get this kicked off, man. I know we usually start with the background, but we're going to kind of change this up a little bit right now because you and your family just got back from Puerto Rico. Is that correct? That's right. And how long were you all down there for? Five nights. And, but this, so when you and I were talking about this uh, a couple weeks back, uh, I guess, you know, prepping for the podcast, and then we had the big freeze and all this stuff. And we're finally, thank you for coming on, by the way. I'm glad we're sitting across the table <laughs> doing this. Thank you. Finally. Thank you for Finally, Absolutely. but you started talking about like you, you, how you travel and how your family travels isn't the uh, how how most people travel. You know what I mean? Like I'll go buy a ticket and get a hotel, did it all that stuff. You do it in kind of a slightly different way. That you've kind of a, I would say a not a small yay, not a guru, but you're kind of an expert at this. And wh- what is this? Kind of shed some light into this. Yeah. So um, back when I first. Uh, was dating my wife Kate. I was living in Denver. She was in Houston at the time, okay. and I was actually working a schedule basically every other week in North Dakota, and a lot of travel, right? Houston, North Dakota, Denver, wherever. And uh, so I started getting into um, travel bloggers and points and miles. And so how do you, you know, how do you use those to your advantage um, with with all the travel that you're doing? So. Uh, the, the first thing that I would say is that, you know, you first sign up for a, um, a travel rewards program. So let's say United out of Houston, right? Southwest, the Southwest, whatever. Right. whatever. So you sign up for those, or if it's a hotel, you can sign up for theirs and they have different elite statuses that the more you use them, the more perks that right. you can get. Right? right. And then, so the second part of that is the credit cards, right? And so you can get, uh, even more perks and, and, and points, through uh, credit cards, and not all of them are specifically branded to you know, the United or the Southwest. Some of them are kind of a, a overarching umbrella, like a Chase United, uh, okay. Chase Ultimate Rewards, or City Thank You, or Capital One. Uh, they have their own miles, and they all have transfer partners, right? And so these, so you can collect these miles, and then you can transfer them to, to whoever, get others, whoever you want. Right, right, okay. So as a beginner, if you were a beginner, I would say probably Chase Ultimate Rewards is the best. So get a credit card that collects those. Um, and then the credit cards, once you get them, they have like introductory point uh, value. So if you spend so much within the first couple months, then they give you a, just a bunch of points. Like so you start accumulating. 50,000, 1,000, okay. 100,000. Okay. And that right there will get you like a round-trip ticket Okay. Uh, on the airline. So... Um, so during this time, started accumulating all all these points and doing that so that we could, you know, go to kind of some adventurous places on vacations and and travel in a way that we wouldn't normally otherwise, you know. 
And um, so on this most recent one, we um, we were able to do the, the, you know, the five nights at the hotel was all paid for on point. So really, yeah. So the kind of so 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 you start diving in on this just because you know you're living separately, you're traveling a lot and all that stuff. So it was kind of your downtime. You're like, hey, I'm gonna fiddle around with this and kind of. See. I know they're offering points here and miles here and this here. So you're just kind of one of those things. You kind of piecemeal it together as an engineer. Yeah, and, and I mean it can get way more complicated and in depth than Dude, what I ever did. Spread, f- spreadsheets galore, and you know I so didn't you have go, spreadsheets. No, I didn't go that far. Okay, I didn't, I didn't go that far, but. But I mean, there, there you know some of the the points that you get. You want to maximize your rewards, right? And so, in order to do that, you have to know. All right, if I'm going to a grocery store, I got to use this credit card. If I'm going to a gas station, I got to use this credit card. And, and so, how do you figure this out? Do you follow people that do this all the time, or I mean, how do, I mean, how do you, I guess, dive into this? Yeah. So, I, I my number one resource was probably the points guy. Okay. And uh, so he's a travel blogger, and um, he's he's been really big. And I know I know travel is different now, right, with COVID. Oh yeah. And so. Um, that's actually a good thing and a bad thing when it comes to these points. It's like now um, we're, we're starting to see some relaxation and restrictions. So now you know travel's picking up. Or if you still don't want to travel, you it, it's a good time to start accumulating points so that when we can travel again, that you can. You, know, you got some in the bank. You got some in the bank. Right. Okay. So the the, the 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 so all you had to pay pay for was pretty much flights. Yeah. On this re- most recent trip. Yeah. Yeah. So how flights. was it? Was it good time and, and, and even then, we we could have technically used uh, points for that too, but. Uh, you got to save some of those for the next trip. Well, you, you want to maximize the value of those. And so sometimes it doesn't make sense to actually use the points. It, sometimes it makes more sense based on the pricing and, and how you value those points to, to actually pay for the, the ticket outright. So how was it traveling, I guess, post, uh, not post, I remember in the middle of it, but I guess uh, the, the, was this your first trip, I guess, uh, uh, to internationally uh, since March of 2020? Yeah. So, well, one thing is, is we wanted to pick a destination that's, Felt international, right? But wasn't right. So Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. Right. So really, the only preparation we had to do was we had to get a COVID test within seventy-two hours of leaving. But we weren't subject to, you know, the current rules of two weeks coming, coming, no quarantine, right. or or coming back into the U.S. You know, from a foreign country, you have to get a, a COVID test before as well. Right. But since we were still part of a U.S. territory, we didn't have to do that coming back in. So how was the experience down there? I mean, was the service there? Was it kind of, did it feel like it was, was pre-COVID or did you kind of, I mean, was it kind of a reduced uh, uh, number of people there? No. So it was during spring break, which when we planned it, we didn't realize. So okay. it was packed. Like, so the airport in San Juan was, I mean, it felt like, you know, a lot of us have been to Cancun. Right. right? So right. it felt like just... The Cancun airport, right? When did you realize it was spring break? When Once you landed, you're like, oh, shit, what, well, <laughs> what have we done? What have we done? Well, we, I real, well, actually, the week before, we, we knew it. And we were like, oh, man, you know, spring gotta, break. Got to commit, though. You know, you've got two weeks here in Houston, and then you had the Easter week. So we knew that, you know, across the country and, and everywhere, there was going to be a lot of vacations. So there were a lot of people. So the airport was buzzing. So the airport was buzzing. Um you know they um, they still did have mask mandates, and uh-huh. uh, but the services, like you mentioned, at the at the hotel were were a little pared back. Um, but o- overall, it was it seemed like it was normal. You even kind of see that in the states, though. I mean, whether you're traveling to, to Austin or to Lake Charles, I mean, it seems like the hotels. I mean, it's they're there. I mean, they want you there at the same prices, but at the same time as the services, the services have kind of dropped. And as we were talking before, we're not high maintenance guys. You know what I mean? Our families aren't either. You know what I mean? Which is a blessing. But it's like you kind of notice, like, hey, the, this faucet's leaking here. That obviously has been doing that for a while, or the towels, or yeah, something like that. So it kind of has drop down but i don't blame it i mean the hospitality industry has gotten demolished yep. over the past year so yep. well, it was good to see that it's coming back yeah right? and uh, you'll see i think soon more and more of these little you know things yeah. that you, you maybe took uh, took for granted previously yeah and then now realize hey oh they're not doing this or or that you know, and it's the minor stuff too that you don't even think about exactly. when you're traveling too so hey why don't you get this kicked off you got a you got a unique background because someone i guess in our age uh, you know, this day and age, especially, I mean, you don't see a lot of people with a lot of tenure, uh, a lot of uh, time at companies. I mean, back, I think in our parents' days, they would stay there for, you know, from once they graduated college until they retired. And that's what they did. Now you see people jump around every, you know, two years, seven years, something like that. You have been at Baker Hughes for 18 years and four months. So why don't you give us uh, the tips? Obviously, you've had so many I'm looking at your LinkedIn right now. You've had so many different roles and it seems like different, whether it's local, whether it's international. Why don't you just get us kicked off and kind of how you got in the oil field, where you grew up and did it all. Give us a spiel. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I was originally born in Maryland, right outside of D.C. Okay. And uh, lived there until I was 10. 
and we moved to central Louisiana as a family. And I spent the the rest of my time uh, going through high school in Alexandria, uh, Louisiana. Well, what, you, what brought your family from uh, Maryland to uh, Louisiana? So my parents are ministers. Okay. So they um, uh, Baptist music ministers. So my mm-hmm. mom, yeah. So every Sunday, my mom played the organ at church. My dad directs the choir. Um, they, you know, they're both ordained ministers, and they um, would write, compose, arrange music. Uh, all the other children's choirs, handbell choirs, this and that. They basically ran all the... Uh, so musicians. Yeah, musicians. Okay. Did you have any of the, that talent? Do you pick up the guitar and strum it every now and then or what? You know, I, uh, I'm i pretty regretful on uh, not taking up some of the the musical yeah. uh, instruments that, that they played. And they, they, you know, I did take piano lessons as a kid and, you know, did strum a guitar and I know a couple chords. But nothing you picked up. Yeah. I mean, I, I was musical. Uh, I did band all the way through high school, but I kind of quit it after high school. Okay. All right. So you're, you're down here. Parents are uh, musical uh, ministry. Yeah. Uh, so they changed churches. Okay. And that was what brought the move um, to, you know, there was a church in need. In, in Alexandria that needed both of their roles, and, right. and so we moved. So it was a little bit of a culture shock, uh, even at, at age 10. So I went from, um, you know, field trips in elementary school. We were going to the Smithsonian, yeah. Yeah. Smithsonian and National Monuments. And, you know, in, in Louisiana, we were going to swamp tours. and It's a little it's – it's different. It, yeah, it is a, <laughs> it's like a different country. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. But, I mean, honestly, uh, I wouldn't have it any – it was tough at the time, but I wouldn't have it any other way, right? We love Louisiana. That's home now. I, yeah. I You know, I, I say I'm from Louisiana now, so – I still say I'm from uh, from Connecticut. Why? Because I, I moved there when I was eight. I left there after high school. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, all right. So you so you grew up there and you went to LSU. Yeah, went to LSU. Studied mechanical engineering. Okay. Um, you know, I I wanted to do pre med um, going into college, and uh, I had a roommate that was uh, a year ahead of me, and and taking some of those classes, decided, hey, that wasn't for me. So. Um, kind of randomly picked, sat down with my parents and looked at the catalog. Back then it was actually a paper catalog. Catalog, yeah. It wasn't and, a lot, uh, yeah. You know, the uh, major descriptions, hey, here are your courses and everything, and settled on mechanical engineering. And uh, and most of my family is all, they're, they're either, you know, in the minister business right. or um, academia. Okay. Right? So nobody's in kind of corporate America. And um, Well, what would you want to do with that mechanical, mechanical engineer? I still didn't know at the time. Okay. Right? right. I just felt like it was versatile. Yeah. So whether it was automobile industry or, or you know, any type of industrial type uh, business. And um, and so my first real introduction to the oil and gas industry was a co-op with Weatherford. Okay. And that was down in Houma, Louisiana, um, with some of their float cementing equipment, uh, float equipment. And I, I was basically a, a lab technician. I would test you so, know, some some of the. So what was there. what was your feeling? I guess going from I guess you know academia, ministry, and all that stuff, and suddenly now you're plunged into what did you say, Monroe, Louisiana, uh, Homa, Homa, Louisiana, Homa, yeah. Louisiana. South all right. Louisiana. So that is South Louisiana. So what was I guess your feeling like? Okay, this is the only gas industry. I'm here. Uh, I'm not. So first generation. I'm guessing. First generation. Yeah. All right. So you're there. You're exposed to this now. So what was I guess your initial reaction from this? You know, it was really excitement, right? Because it was new. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, the even as an intern, you know, the the wages were were decent. They yeah. were good, right? So I was excited about you know about that and and understanding really what as a as a career what potential there was uh, in the industry. Right. Um, I also, you know, the being a lab technician, I was able to just blow up things right and and so that was kind of cool, cool too <laughs> yeah what what person probably, doesn't want to do probably that? a little um you know hsc has come a long way since since then so back in the old days yeah back yeah back in the old days when you start off so so you start off as an intern with boy the and then kind of carry us through on i guess how you kind of i guess took the plunge uh into the oil and gas industry and how you stayed at a Various, give us your various roles over at uh, Baker Hughes. So yeah, walk so, us through that. So so right out of school, um, started with Baker Hughes in Bell Chase, Louisiana, just outside of New Orleans, and uh, was an offshore field engineer. Okay. And so in the engineering program, they basically assign you to, uh, we call it a product line. So you kind of start specializing in one specific product line. And so mine was liner hanger systems, liner top packers. It was... Um, uh, Open hole completions is what okay. we called it at the time, and uh, so you start, you know, learning how to redress tools and how they work in the shop, and then you start going offshore and learning how to actually run them and install them, 
And, um, and so, you know, that was, that was exciting there too, right? Going, you know, getting on your first helicopter, right? And, uh, you get your best sleep out there too. <laughs> if you can sleep, if you can. Sleep. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, we were out there for, you know, let's say five days at a time and, and, you know, you're up nonstop. The majority of the time it's like short naps for, for three days, right. three of those days. But once the job was done, then you could sleep and that was you know, you hope you didn't miss your helicopter. But, but the, but the, I know that was the worst. <laughs> I, I remember every day, every day before you fly, fly back in from offshore, it's either, it's either misty or it's cloudy and the chopper can't get out there or something like that. It's always that last day. Yeah, waiting on weather. That you waiting on weather nonstop. And that 11 o'clock comes around, you're like, the birds can't. It's like, damn, another day, another day out here. Yeah. So it was a pretty fun experience though, yeah. going offshore for you. No, absolutely. And you learn a lot. Um, there's a lot you take for granted as you look back on your career, you know, with, with the offshore sector and, and how much process and procedure and planning preparation goes into, you know, each each job, each yeah. well. And uh, and I think that helps, you know, as the, the industry has changed and, and North America has you know boomed um, in the last 10 years. Uh, I think that 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 has helped drive some of that. Um, so, so this engineering program was about three years. Um, I, I stayed in and we actually moved our district from Belchase to Homa, um, for, uh, so I stayed there for three years and then I moved to Houston the first okay. time. So th- this was more of a, uh, a regional engineering support role. Okay. So doing, doing basically the same thing, but on a, um, you know, a more advanced technical level, Pre-job planning, project management, working with sales, supporting sales. And so now you kind of have more of a, 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 a broader view of the overall uh, the, the, the procedure, the system from, I guess, concept to, I guess, deliver. Correct. And and so, yeah, so you, you, you can, you're, you're seeing more of the manufacturing side of things. You're seeing more of the sales side of things, uh, really that whole quote to cash yeah. process. And, and also this was, you know, the way we were structured then was there was still some land that was starting to kick off. So I remember, you know, multilaterals for the Barnett shale, which was before, you know, really the, the beginning of the shale boom. We, you know, we were supporting some customers that were starting to run these multilaterals and that sort of okay. thing. So um, that was my first really foray into North America land. All right. So so you, you moved to Houston. Yeah. And then, and then kind of uh, carry us through. Yeah. So um, a- after that role, I went actually into sales and uh, really enjoyed that role. Did you really? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So tell me about that. So I think it, out of any role that, that that you are in in our industry, it's probably the most uh, instant gratification role there is, right? Okay. If you go and win a, win a sale. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. So easy, easily measured, you know, instant gratification, and that's kind of the, the world we live in these days. So I don't know that feeling anymore these days. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you experienced that. So, but I, so I, Specifically was um, in-house for the most part okay. in BP, and this was actually during the time. This was back for offshore, uh, and this was during the time of Macondo. Yeah. And so we, um, you know, the unfortunate uh, event, absolutely, people lost their lives and, uh, it, you know, damaged the environment. But we were fortunate enough to be able to help with the intersect wells and uh, the relief wells. And so that's really what um, was you know, was the beginning of my success with that BP account. I mean, during, I mean, during that time, that, that was such a surreal, uh, and tragic, uh, incident and moment also, but I would imagine being the forefront of that, I guess the, the actually day to day activities to, I guess, mitigate what was going on there. I mean, how tell me about that for you? If, if, if you can. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if, if anybody remembers, there was, you know, news vans just parked out front right. all the time, broadcasting live, like all day nonstop. And um, you know, all the operations floor was you know it was tight holes, it was yep. secured and everything, and and there were a lot of visits from the government, right? Government agencies, the uh, Secretary of the Interior, and, and uh, the whole delegation from from there. And uh, you know, I remember going in the building like any normal day and, and trying to get on an elevator, and then uh, you know, people in suits with talking into their sleeves and earpieces saying, "Hey, you can't get on this elevator, get out," you know. Yes, sir. And, uh, <laughs> So, I'll take the stairs. So yeah, so uh, yeah, I'll take the stairs. Wait on the next one. But um, 
So, you know, being in the morning meetings for, for some of these intersect wells, you know, it's just a pressure cooker, right? It was, they were intense. They were the most focused and, and yeah. determined I've, you know, ever seen any, any operation. Well, the entire world's eyes was on, was on y'all at that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, there was, it was just, it was so critical at the time to, to make sure that everything was executed flawlessly. And, um, and, you know, I think for the most part, you know, there were, there was, a lot of things that that may not have been handled so great, but I think for the most part, the the intersect wells um, we were able to complete pretty quickly. So, how'd you handle that? I guess that pressure from all that. <clears throat> well, you know, I, I, is that just keep keep your head down, get the job done, or is it? I mean, did you have to kind of take per, some personal space or activities, hobbies, or something? Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest thing was that you you could potentially be put on the spot you know, in those meetings, right. And, and saying, you know, if you weren't delivering fast enough or, or, or the, the service execution was, um, not a hundred percent. So, right. so if, if anybody's had those conversations on a normal, well, you know, magnify that by yeah, a thousand. Yeah. When, when so many other people are, are looking at you and there's so much else at stake. So, um, I, you know, I think that the pressure for me was mostly to get across, you know, as a salesperson, to, to get across, you know, the capabilities, you know, and just make sure that that was communicated effectively and then to make sure that we could deliver, you know, with on time and, and that sort of thing. So um, I, I think there was probably more pressure on the execution team than there, the operations team than there was from a sales. Right. But still everyone at that table kind of had an important role. Absolutely. I would imagine. So you're, you're in sales of BP, Macondo, uh, and then, uh, then. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, the, the Things opened back up in uh, in the Gulf after the moratorium, and and there was really just a um, a whole new host of, of regulation that yeah, we had to that. accommodate. Um, and for a service company, it meant you know traceability of of things that we really hadn't been tracking yep. <laughs> prior yep. to that. Yep. And, and uh, in a whole host of processes and procedures, you know, from that whole quota cash process we mentioned. And so I I took a role actually going back to Homa to lead our operations district. So after Houston, you moved back to Homa. Moved back to Homa okay. to lead the district. And so this is my first manager experience and um, and with all these new regulations. So did you did you try to actually pursue this and actually uh, did you try to pursue this uh, this managerial role or was this something like hey Will, we 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 have a space for you that we need you to fill. I mean, was this kind of I mean, how did this I guess get uh, brought to you? Yeah, so it was um, it was we we want you to take this role. Okay. And uh it actually, you know, it it was excellent developmentally. Um yeah. there wasn't you know, but I was I was happy doing what I was doing in, in Houston as well, but I think there was there were some personal things that wanted to bring me a little bit closer back to Louisiana. Okay. Um and so it made perfect sense. Were you ready for this me. managerial role? So looking back. So, you know, being an offshore district and, and how intense and how you know expensive each well, hundred million dollar wells, you know, and more, um, you know, you would think you know this is a pretty big responsibility. And as far as liner hanger systems go, at the time that was kind of our flagship global district. Um, it's like seventy five million dollars a year uh, in revenues, right. and um, and and so you, you you question yourself, you know, am I ready for this? But Looking back, the best thing about that was because there was so much process-oriented um, procedures and quality plans and that sort of thing that it was a well-oiled machine. Okay. Right? So it um, it was a good introduction yeah. to, to being a manager. Now, the challenge for me was these were the guys that, that trained me. Oh, so suddenly you're coming in as a different level, different position. Now you kind of have to supervise the people that Correct. you're Correct. That's a so, weird feeling. So, so how did you deal with that, those relationships? So, I mean, the team is great. The team was great. Right. But um, a little reluctant to change and, and, and stuck in their ways. And and when they're the ones that have showed you the ropes, you know, it's challenging to really convince them to, to make a change. And so you really have to go into, you know, why are we making the change? And that's really motivating any team yeah. and, and getting them to accept changes. Why are we doing this? What is the end game? You know, it may seem like it's making your job more difficult, um, but the end game is to ultimately make this process bigger than what your role is, more efficient, or, or whatever it is. So so get, just getting them to, to understand um, why we would make 
certain changes uh, was big, the biggest challenge so I that, saw. But that also sounds like it could have been the biz, biggest success if you find a way to effectively communicate why we're doing this. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that was the, uh, you know, that's that's huge in any role. And so that was really my first practice at, at effectively communicating, you know, change, change management, um, and and that sort of thing. So a lot of a lot of people that get those those new managerial roles, they think, okay, well, I don't, I, I can, I have to uh, filter what I communicate to my team. I have to uh, take this and spill it to my team, however I see fit. But I mean, you hear about a lot of successful uh, managers or people that sit in those roles that when it does come to communication, it's the I find the ones that kind of that I've heard stories or spoken to or sat across the table to that shine are the ones that are very transparent with their teams. Yeah. No, I I mean, I was very transparent and they knew me so well that, you know, I let them operate for the most part autonomously. And, and, and I was focused on, you know, how do I learn how to run a PNL? How do I learn how to run a business? Cause that was what I hadn't done. Which is a great experience though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the business side of things. Yeah. And that's, you know, that was, you know, my ultimate goal was I wanted to get that PL experience for taking that role and, uh, and go in there. And I think that's critical really for, um, for, for anybody in our industry is understanding the, the financial aspect of it and the profitability and the cash flow and, uh, costs and that sort of thing. That's why you see so many reservoir engineers going up to CEO level because they understand the <laughs> yeah. financial side of uh, the, the the business. Absolutely. Which is long, what, what yeah, you need to return, speak to. Return on investment. That's right. So how long did you do this for and before you went to your next role? So I did that for two years and then I um, I went into the Denver role. So uh, Denver, I... Homa, Houston, Homa, Denver. Okay. Correct. I'm with you. Yeah. So I went to Denver um, to, to lead our... Williston Basin area. So this was Williston Dickinson, and we had a small satellite shop in uh, Glendive, Montana. Okay, I'm with you. So this was about twenty uh, into 2013, December 2013 to about May 2016. You still got the LinkedIn up? I'm just guessing right now. <laughs> I, I can read you right now. I can read. I'm good with guests. I can read you're, you. You're good at dates. <laughs> yeah. So um, so it, it, this was. I always say. Post the Wild West days, or yeah. it's coming to the end of the Wild West days uh, in Williston, and then, and then really where the infrastructure started improving, and um, and then of course into 2016, which was the most you know the a downturn there. Yeah, that was a I remember that downturn, and then you actually went to a so you're in Denver doing the area operations manager. Yep. Role. Yeah. So this, so this is a uh, similar to the previous role, but it's instead of being over one district, it was over an area. So, so you work seven you, districts. So you're not working the same group. So you went from that one group. So you actually, so there's another, uh, a, another promotion, another layer of now you have more than this home district. You have seven other districts like that. Correct. So, we, so in this role, I was based in Denver. I wasn't at any of the districts. Okay. I had district managers at each one. And, um, and so it was even more, uh, strategic financial PL uh, type of role where you know I, I would spend half of my time in Denver with our leadership for the region and you know our customer base for the most part in Denver and then the other half of the time was up in North Dakota so how was that I guess I guess going from one uh, district to seven I mean how was that learning curve for you was it kind of the same thing on a bigger scale or, or did you have to learn to new tools during this uh, transition so the the, there were some new tools to learn, but they were, they, you know, it wasn't that difficult because you're you're not really in the technical at that point. You're more in the business okay. operations. Uh, but it was it was understanding, you know, customer base is different. You know, the the the, the, the contractual models, the, the quoting process, right. that's all different, right? right? You know, long term project managed contracts offshore and, and offshore. Here it's. Um, one day, well to well, well to well. It, you know that is interesting. I remember going. I remember going from offshore. You're looking at those like you know the, the, the riser inspection, all that stuff's like three million, five million. And then I went to drill pipe, land drill pipe, and it was like eleven cents per foot or whatever it was. I'm like, that's nothing. Just give it. You know, that's nothing. But the scope is different. You know, I mean, it's it is different, but it is kind of a, you know, take away all the all the scope of it. it is the same thing. Yeah, and and, and um, there's really a whole other skill of. Uh, understanding the customer needs and, and being able to meet those expectations in North American land, you know, versus offshore as well. Right. So you're doing this, you're doing this in Denver. Are you enjoying Denver? Oh yeah. I love Denver. Okay. All I right. love Denver. Okay. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, my girlfriend at the time, wife now, um, she was based in Houston so. and the wedding was coming up and, and, and 
there was a, a conversation where she mentioned that it might be good if we live in the same state when we get married. That makes sense. I mean, if you're planning a wedding, it makes sense to kind of be around each other. You want to make sure you can live near each other versus, you know, versus two states away and kind of figure it out that way. So, so obviously you got to get back to Houston. And was that a conversation you had with your, uh, with your supervisors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and thankful for them, you know, this was down 2016 downturn. Yep. There wasn't a lot of flexibility in roles. I mean, you just, everybody was kind of like, mm, I'm going to, this is what you get. This is what you get. And so very fortunate to, to be able to transfer back to Houston in a role that, um, you know, I'm not scared to say it, it, it wasn't necessarily the best fit for me. It was out of my comfort zone. So if, if there was any role that, that I, t- I took on in my career that um, challenged me the most with, without any technical knowledge or operational knowledge, it was, it was this role. And it was a, a global um, inventory manager role. Okay. So now, okay. I'm in, now I'm in inventory material supply chain. Um, and you were never in that before. I mean, you kind of managed it a little bit, but that wasn't kind of your, your what you focused on previously. Right. It would. Yeah. Most of the time, I was, you know, talking with these guys and asking, "Hey, well, where's our equipment?" Yeah. <laughs> ba- yeah. Stuff that. Uh, you, now, now I'm that person now. But uh, so in 26, so so we uh, during this downturn, as an inventory manager, we had this. Uh, impairment globally so it was kind of a you know it's a, a a finance term where you come and you you know you basically write off a bunch of uh whatever it is whether yeah. it's facilities assets whatever okay and so i was in charge of really compiling from a global standpoint this excess inventory that we were going to ultimately impair that seems like such a huge it was like over, project it was like over you know 100 million dollars so i mean so you're stepping into this role you kind of this is the first global role you're taking so that i'm assuming that included some traveling yeah um well because of the downturn you know there was some restrictions on you know excess cost and and travel costs so um it was you know a lot of late nights meeting with asia pacific and yeah and uh, acclimate to their time their schedules and all that stuff right yeah and and it was uh the deadlines were were based on you know specific quarterly earnings you know deadlines okay and so there would be you know obscure instructions on gathering you know this piece of information or that information and and you have to be able to you know understand quickly what is this really what is this output there wasn't a lot of instruction and so that there was there was times where you know we'd have to redo it and then we'd make the deadline even right uh, right it's like pressure cooker it, it was okay it was so All right. so i you know and 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 like i mentioned you know we there were people in the organization, they, this was, you know, I don't want to say it was a placeholder, but it was, you know, it was a way for me to one, get back to Houston, but it was also a way for me to expand some experience that, that was needed in a short time. So this role lasted only six months. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And then I got into, um, the global product line manager role for the liner hanger systems that I talked about. And so this was, um, this was a role that, that definitely felt fit my skill set much better. Because you, you've had the background on this. You kind of know how to kind of manage the multiple businesses, and now it's on a global level. Yeah. That's pretty exciting, though. Yeah, no, it, it, it was. It, it was. You know, I was really excited to get it, and, uh, you know, especially with you know, enjoying travel and that sort of thing. You know, the industry was picking up and was able to, to go to it, you know, be based in Houston but yeah. still be in a global role in, in travel. Um you know, I've been to some incredible places and, and even the ones that are less desirable, it's, you know, it's really neat to just see cultures and to see how the business operates there and how the customer base is there and, and really try to understand, um, and the contrast of cultures too. I mean, the contrast cultures and also kind of, kind of, to me, you know, you, you travel and all that stuff, it kind of brings you to a certain level, you know, uh, humility, you know, being humble, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Um, thankful for what we have here in the States. Um, and then it also expands your skill set in the sense of you have to understand how to. We it all come, comes back to communication, yeah. but but what motivates people from other cultures, and you know how do they how do they work, and you know whether it's hierarchical or how to respect their culture and that sort of thing. And so there's uh, a lot of nuances that you have to consider when you're 
trying to do business internationally. I mean, that's it. I mean, you know, some, some state, you know, some countries are very like business up front, you no know, personal stuff. Other cultures, like, you know, you gotta talk to the, you have to have those relationships for, you know, months on end before you even discuss business. So it really is kind of a, a learning what each culture, how they conduct their business in. And that's, that's fun though. I yeah. Think. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. It really is. I mean, the way things you're, you're used to doing business at home in Louisiana or Denver or Houston is not the way it's done. And whether it's Nigeria or whether it's, you know, wherever, wherever part of the country you Russia yeah, yeah. or wherever. M- Middle East. Exactly. Ton, yeah. Exactly. Very different. Very different. But you got to adapt to all that stuff, which is exciting. Yeah, it really is. I and, think. And, and the other thing is, too, is like you take the, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, right? And, you know, huge market there globally. And um, but it's one customer. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, there's there's some challenges associated with that and, and learning how that relationship Works to me, well. it's all—it's also communicating. I mean, it's—it's it's also being a li- liaison between, for example, KSA and uh, the states. I mean, I remember when I was over there. You know, uh, my employer was saying, "Hey, you need to sell X Y Z. You need to sell X Y Z." But it's like, man, that's not how it is. I mean, that's not how business is done here. You know, like you don't tell the engineer kind of what they need to be drilling with. And not only that, you really can't expand your market share because how they do this, how they did. You have, you know, let's say there's whatever you have, you have a third, you have a third and you have a third. So you really can't like grow and expand it if your service is better than the other. I don't know. That's kind of my experience over there. But, but you have to kind of be a liaison to communicate to to your supervisors back here, you know, or wherever you're stationed. Like this is just because you want something that was done in the States. That doesn't mean how it's done over in KSA or anywhere else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you got to communicate that. So you actually switched to a different role, I guess, right before COVID hit in uh, 2020. Yeah, so that's the role that I'm currently in. Okay. So I I, um, I came back to North America Lane, and that's where I came into this you know engineering manager position. Um, so operations engineer. So um, you know the engineering program that I started with, and then the the let's say the region engineer when I first moved to Houston. Um, these engineers are all I lead that group now. Okay. So for for all of North America Land. And it's not just liner hangers now, it's completions and wellbore interventions, right. which are kind of our whole completion portfolio. So which, I guess out of all your, it seems like you've had, you know, 17 or 18 different or 12 different different uh, titles over at uh, Bakery's, which has been the role that you've, I guess, uh, enjoyed the most, uh, the, brought the most personal satisfaction to and why? Yeah, I, I knew this this question was You did? To... You did? <laughs> so... When you look back and you see, you know, all the, all the different roles, there's there's certain things that you want to get out of each role. And so I mentioned, you know, sales sales was awesome, in my opinion, because it was the instant gratification piece. So I think that it's hard to choose one specific role that you like the most, but um, I think that each one you take tidbits from. So when I was, you know, area manager in Denver, you know, that was the one where I learned the most about a business, right, and, okay. and running a business. And so there's skills that I learned there, um, you know, motivating people. Um, I think that, that all of the roles, you know, kind of take – you can take from that on how to motivate people. And, and again, we talked about the cultures and how you, you, you change your approach and how to motivate people and work with people there. Um, the inventory role, I didn't mention this earlier, but um, it was it was my first individual contributor role in, in a while, right? So I had been a manager in, in okay. both roles, and, and then this was really an individual contributor. So you had to learn how to, you know, use your your network and influence to so more of the, your support role. More of the, soft, the softer skills. Yeah, so yeah. To, to be able to, to, to get your tasks complete and, and get people on board and that sort of thing. So you, you learn those skills there, and then... Um, I think the the biggest one in the current role is is mentoring and 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 training engineers for you know their careers coming up. So how do you I guess identify someone to mentor? I mean, obviously you can't have the same attention or effort on everyone. I mean, I guess how do you identify and what do you mentor? Is it is it is it time management? Is it is it is it kind of career path? What is it? I think it depends on each person, right? There's certain things that you think that that. That people need to focus on, but I've always found that uh, that a mentor-mentee relationship is best when it's informal, yeah, and not like assigned. Where you have a we have a sheet in front of you. It's like okay, yeah, let's months. build this out. Yeah. All right, now we're gonna you know we're gonna meet so often. Yeah, and so um, you know I actually had a, a, a mentor assigned to me at one point was cross divisions within the company. This is you know this is way back right. And, um, ended up only meeting like two times and then just fizzled out because there's so much change in the organization, you know, and, and just 
It's got to be, it's got to be applicable too. It's got to be real world stuff too, versus, you know, twice a year tagging up and having no relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, the mentors that I feel like have had the biggest impact on, on my career have, have all been informal and, and people just along the way that whether, um, and most of them I actually haven't reported to in their structure, right? They're kind of, uh, along the side, somebody kind of look up to and they, you kind of, yeah, you know, I can learn yeah. something from this. Maybe person. we worked side by side at one point and then, you know, the careers have gone just different places. So, um, yeah. So, so you got over this role in February 2020. Uh, the world stopped March 2020. I guess during this time from when you started this to now, I guess, what have kind of uh, been some challenges that you've seen, I guess, during this uh, this, this this COVID time uh, in your new role? Because you got dumped there a month before everything stopped. So what, how was that for you? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing has been I haven't been able to, to go out to all the locations from a travel standpoint right. and based on our company regulations and, and – uh, with respect to the the virus, but um, so I haven't been able to develop those relationships in person with you know our engineers on the ground. Um, so are you doing that virtually though? Yeah, no, we we've got teams and we, you know we do we even try to do happy hours or whatever with uh, you know any of the video. Yeah, it's it, it still is very difficult to make that genuine authentic connection though with, over Zoom or Teams or anything like that, isn't it? It, it really is, and so you know. For me to my motivational style is is it's got to start with like affinity and in order to develop that affinity or that um, commonality something yeah. that, something that you can both relate to um, I really need to have that one on one I feel like I need to have yeah. that one on one conversation to be able to find what that commonality is and that affinity and then that develops trust in the relationship and then the trust can then turn into motivation okay. So you need to have that, but it's, 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 it's challenging though. So I guess you see through zoom and teams, happy hour or whatever, I, it's, it's kind of the only thing you can do right now. Uh, if you can, if, if, if you can't get out to a location or shake these people's hands or, you know, meet them face to face. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's been a challenge and hopefully, you know, hopefully the restrictions will, will start easing up. Uh, I think they will. I think they will with all the vaccines and all that stuff and the tra- air travel going, I think, it, I think it will. I think things are kind of going not to the new normal or the old normal but it's 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 definitely lightening up a little bit yeah yeah absolutely i think our um you know our current i guess deadline is is june 1st where we think we're going to lift some of our restrictions okay i mean the, again that's probably a moving target i mean I, yeah they've they've, they've i think pushed it was it, out, it, but was, I, I, it was june 1st 2020 <laughs> here we are a year later that's true, that's true. <laughs> That's for everyone, though. So I guess let's let's get on. Uh, what else do you want to talk about? I guess what's so what? Look in hindsight. I guess what would you kind of uh, what do you wish you? I guess knew more before you took on a role. I mean, and also that role that you took with the inventory role. Let's get back to that. I mean, you said you were kind of thrust in there, kind of out of your out of your comfort zone and all that stuff. I mean, looking back on that, I mean, is that the, is, would you do that again, or is it kind of uh, would you steer clear away from kind of jumping into something you're not comfortable with? No, I absolutely would recommend doing it because I think that the, it, it gives you a different perspective on, on how to approach things and, and really strategically um, be in the moment, right? You have to uh, actively think about, you know, how how am I going to complete my goals? Whereas in in some of these other roles where you become a master at it or, or you, you you're know, comfortable, you, with, you're it. comfortable with it, that, that it, you just it's, you just do it automatically, right. right? Subconsciously or whatever. So um, I, I think that it definitely does help um, develop some of those skills with with actively being strategic which as you move through your career you need to be obviously developed and then um, and then also as I mentioned uh, you know that you can never stress how important your network is um, both internally and externally of your, that's what we're or, of your organization here. that's what we're always talking about here just expand your network even if it's a, a customer a salesperson a person in HR wh- whoever it is talk to people, get to know people, whether they can do anything for you today or whatever, just, just expand your network, Yeah. meet someone for a cup of coffee, just introduce yourself. Even if there's no point of that conversation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Hey, I want to bounce an idea off of you. Have you ever experienced this? Yeah. And it could be somebody that you haven't talked to in a while. Just, you know, so, or you've never met and you just see, you just kind of see, ah, oh, these people, they, they deal with something similar. So I'm just going to introduce myself and that's it. Absolutely. So we kind of talked about this before, before you came on, I guess, uh, you, two things I kind of want to talk about. The first thing is, I guess, what do you saw? What do you wish you saw? I guess, you know, taking all your roles, whether it's in, whether it's Homo, Houston, Denver, global, or whatever that looks like, I guess, what do you kind of wish that you saw more in our industry or what do you wish our industry was doing more or more active, uh, uh, too? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that you're going to see, especially coming out of COVID, you're going to see more emphasis on energy transition and um, a little bit more transparency on um, on our carbon emissions. Okay. Right? And I think in the past, we've done a poor job uh, as, if you want to call it, just oil and gas industry uh, of digging our heels in and um, really not trying to embrace some of the conversations that uh, that we have with respect to change. Or even engaging in those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, though. I mean, the whole digging the heels in and saying, nope, this is how it is, this is how it is. I mean, that's that's not going to facilitate, a, I guess, a, a productive conversation. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it will. And, you know, we you're going to hear more and more about the energy transition. And I think that, you know, our company, Baker Hughes, as well as, Many of the large super majors have all kind of come out with carbon reduction targets that are kind of in line with the Paris Climate Accord. And, uh, you know, I think you'll see a lot more talk about uh, energy companies instead yeah. of just oil, oil and gas. gas. You see that all the time right now. You see websites being uh, completely restructured where it's a picture of a lake and hills and all that stuff, which is great. I mean, we are, and we, whether we're oil and gas or not, we still are environmentalists. Yeah, absolutely. I think we. I mean, I think we never need to be honest with ourselves and be stewards of the environment. Um, and, and I think that we can coexist. Uh, there are ways that we can coexist, and and some of the technologies that that people are talking about now are ones that really have already coexisted with us. Exactly. You know, geothermal and and gas storage, and you know, obviously the the solar and wind and but this isn't this is this isn't new stuff though i mean this whole energy transition i mean yeah it seems like there's a lot of uh there's a lot more uh, uh, noise right now uh, post covid and all that stuff but this is something that's been going on for decades yeah you know what i mean like it, it's nothing new so let's not stop having the same old conversations yeah i think that we just need to learn to um you know to embrace it and 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 understand that you know Oil and gas isn't going anywhere in the near term, right? If you look at, uh, I think it's Rystad data, they say peak oil demand globally will come 2028 to 2030. Okay. So, you know, we've got eight to 10 years before that's going to happen. And then even when that demand starts decreasing for strictly for oil and gas, um, it's going to be Still. another decade or two, you know, we're talking 2050 before, you know, we have to really think about other things. So in the meantime, from, I guess, today until 2028 or 2035 or whatever that is, what could we do as an industry right now to, I guess, uh, be at that table and have those conversations? What does, I guess, energy transition, I guess, mean for you uh, for, for, for personally and also for the North American land uh, business and also internationally? What does that mean to you? Because you get a lot of good points about, you know, geothermal, new, uh, raising the, uh, what, what do we call it? The, uh, what did Drew Limbacher say? He called it the uh, energy poverty levels, you know, increasing the energy poverty levels. And you had a different uh, term for that, but what, so what does the energy transition actually mean uh, for you personally, and also us as an industry? Yeah, well, I, so I think part of the reluctance from an energy transition standpoint for our industry is that we feel that um, every country, whether they're an emerging nation, or whatever, has the right to safe, affordable, efficient energy, and and. And the key is that some of these alternative energies may not be as efficient um, or reliable right. as oil and gas, as fossil fuels. And uh, and so I think that there's the thought that for all of these countries, they should have every single opportunity to be able to, you know, have running fresh water mm-hmm. and electricity in their homes and only pay, you know, equivalent to what, what we pay here in the U.S. And I know that there's a ton of other circumstances with respect to, you know, politics and government and that that sort of thing that that can challenge that. But, um, you know, some of these countries are just now developing infrastructure to be able to, you know, whether it's refineries or chemical plants or um, power plants and that sort of thing. And that's the thing, though. Is it's not that they're you know behind the times or anything like that. It's just the infrastructure with them and the and the and the I guess the access to affordable energy such as hydrocarbons has not been there. Right. Yeah, they may be landlocked and and not have you know oil reserves right in, in their country at all or uh, whatever it may be. But um, something has set them back. 
from so infrastructure. How, so what does the energy transition look like to you, to, to the North American land market uh, that, that you're seeing, I guess, that, that, I guess that, you, that you feel? Yeah, so, you know, if you look at, like, the California market, the California market is a lot of geothermal already, right. so that's been going on for a while. Even we've got geothermal work in Hawaii, and I'd love to go. I'd love Run to those jobs. Start, be, <laughs> start being a salesman in Hawaii. I'll, I'll do that in a heartbeat, man. Yeah, and then you look at the Northeast, and, and they've, you know, big gas storage market there as well. Um, so I think that you're just going to see a little bit more with respect to, to carbon capture. Yeah. And um, I think there's going to be more talks about nuclear um, being uh, safe and reliable. And um, and really, I think that's what you're going to start seeing in, from North America. And I, th- I think you're going to see... Um, traditional oil and gas companies expand to to some of these as well. I mean, from a, from a drilling and completion standpoint, a lot of these really do go hand in hand. The geothermal is is still not much different. Um, That's right. You just you're dealing with steam and, and high temperatures, and um, so there, there's some changes that we'll need to, to make. But the overall technologies and, and, and drilling and completion methods are, are already existing, and they will need us. To really to further these technologies. So all this change that's going on, obviously people, all this noise, the people hearing about change here, oh, the energy transition here, renewables. I guess what I guess what would you tell people out there right now listening that are listening to this that 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 there is change coming, whether you like it or not, whether it's whether it's energy transition, personal career, but the how I guess how can we be best equipped to I guess handle this change? Uh, whether number one, I would say acceptance. You know, except that it's going to change regardless whether you yeah. beat your chest or not. It's going to change. And it is changing. Yeah. I mean, we're we're reluctant to change. I think it's just human nature and, and industry in general is reluctant to change. And, um, and we're so a proud industry, too. We are. Yeah. And, and, and really, the point is that we need to we need to be able to embrace that change and understand really what does it mean? It doesn't mean that, that oil and gas is going to be irrelevant anytime soon. Right. It just means that we need to better coexist and and um, and try to push those technology limits yeah so that's what i always say it's like you know this this narrative that's been built up the fossil fuels versus renewables it's like there's no versus we've coexisted and we it's all energy you know it's we're not fighting each other it's it's we're having the same conversation so let's sit at the table and not take that us versus them approach let's discuss the change let's discuss you know how to facilitate that and uh what we can do as an industry to to help that because we we are very smart people we're very technical people you know we we whether it's information data we we have the skill set we have the people so let's not yeah let's not again dig our heels and let's sit at the table and have engaging conversations because the change is there yeah absolutely i mean it's it's coming and uh and we just need to it'd be better to get in front of it than to be you know a follower i think that our industry has done a um uh a poor job of getting ahead of the story or getting ahead of the narrative and telling our, our story and tell, kind of offering what we do as an industry uh, that that has impact communities and, and people's lives. Yeah, and I, I don't think people understand really the, the, the breadth of our industry. So it's not just gas, gasoline and, and, you know, jet fuel. It's, you know, there's, there's you know, all kinds of byproducts that we make that, that are every day. Uh, and, and we need to do a better job of making sure everybody understands that, you know, if if oil and gas goes away, so does all this other stuff. Not just there goes your jelly shoes and your your sandals and all that stuff. So, yeah, I think that's it. I think it's just I, I completely agree with you. It's, it's it's having those conversations. It's it's just under, it's, it's it's also telling the story of uh, of of us uh, as an industry and kind of what we do provide. Yeah, yeah, not just on a local level, but on a global level. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Will, what else you got? What else you got for uh, the listeners out there? Any any other message? What are you excited about? I guess moving forward. How about that? Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited in North American land to see, you know, 60 plus oil. Yeah, that is that feels <laughs> that feels good. Now I would just wish the activity would follow right now. Yeah. Um, so so seeing things pick back up, I think that you know it's it's challenging uh, to be in an industry where everything's negative, and you know I know for for our organization, you know, anytime you go through restructuring and, and um, activities suppressed. Uh, it's hard to find the positives in things, and so yeah. I think that we're just now being able to do that, and uh, and and looking forward to some more fun fun days, going to work and, and it being fun now. Yeah, we went. I went to the uh, AD golf tournament. I think uh, it was last Monday, and that was the first time I really felt like it was like everyone was back 
goofing off, laughing. There wasn't a, there wasn't COVID talk. There was, I mean, there wasn't, I mean, yeah, there was COVID, but it wasn't like doom and gloom. It was, it seemed like the, 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 the atmosphere and the energy was a little more uh, positive and, and, and optimistic, which was great, I thought. Yeah, we definitely need that. I think that, you know, just as human beings, you can only take so much of the, of the negativity and the challenge. And, yeah. and so it's, it's, you know, so we're looking forward to, um, to a, a good 2021 with, with activity improvement and, more of these events like more of these, I love these events I love I mean that's the one thing about our industry I love it's, it's the people it's the stories it's the relationships that are built and it's so difficult to have done that in the past year and I'm so glad to kind of see you're starting to see these you know barbecues these charity events or they're, like, they're starting being more well attended right now which I'm excited about yeah I think they even said uh, opening day in, in Arlington for baseball oh yeah was that like 100% capacity first 100% capacity and you get the rest of Go with it. Go with it. Why not? We'll if you see. want to go, let him go. I don't, that's that's my opinion. Well, everyone, again, this is uh, this is Will Colley. Again, you can uh, connect with him on uh, LinkedIn uh, and just kind of uh, ping him, uh, tag up with him a cup of coffee, uh, pick his ear about mentoring, leadership, uh, sales, or, or, or kind of uh, how to embrace change. Um, I appreciate you coming on. I'm glad we're able to finally do this. Um, uh, I kind of want to, I would love to get kind of get in stories next time about, uh, traveling, uh, different, different places, kind of what you've seen and kind of the differences and all that stuff. But, uh, that's got to wait. That's got to wait for our audience until next time round two. Next time. But, uh, Will, again, I appreciate it. And again, everyone, this is a Will Colley, the, uh, regional service delivery technical manager at Baker Hughes, or as we like to say, the operations engineer manager, NALCWI. Um, again, everyone, thank you for tuning in to Round the Rotary. And, uh, Will, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And, uh, we'll be in touch, buddy. Thanks for having me, JP. All right, buddy. Talk to you in a little bit.